You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Our reading this morning comes from the letter of Paul to the Colossians, chapter 3. We'll read the verses 1 through 14. Since then, you have been raised with Christ, set your heart on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ and God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other, since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Here there is no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, Kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Our text this morning comes from Paul's letter to the Philippians, chapter 1. In the next few weeks, we hope to go through Paul's letter to the Philippians. And so we begin with the beginning. Our text this morning is Philippians 1, verses 3 through 11, but we'll begin reading at verse 1 of that chapter. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons, Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about you, about all of you, since I have you in my heart. For whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ, 
filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the praise, to the glory and praise of God. Brothers and sisters of the Lord Jesus Christ, Philippi is the city in which the Philippians, the people to which Paul wrote this letter, lived. That's pretty obvious. At the time that Paul writes this letter to them, it's a city that has been marked by two dramatic events in its history. Two events that have shaped the the city significantly, but in very different ways. The first major event, the first time that the city was changed, was in the year 42 B.C. Before that time, the city of Philippi was notable, but nothing stood out about it. The the people of Philippi were normal people, but everything changed in the year 42 B.C. In that year, Mark Antony, along with a young Octavian, two Roman senators, who would later, uh, Octavian would later become the emperor of Rome, Caesar Augustus. Those two led and, led their armies and defeated the armies of Cassius and Brutus, two men who were involved in the conspiracy to kill Julius Caesar. And in celebration of this victory, they settled some of the soldiers from that victory there in the city of Philippi. And they also gave to this city special rights. They they elevated their status to the same status of, of a city in Italy, which was the highest status that a city could have in that time. And all the citizens of Philippi were automatically made citizens of Rome with all the rights and privileges that that involved. And again, that was the highest level of citizenship you could have in that time. The effect of this favor by Octavian, or Caesar Augustus, was so dramatic that the city itself changed. The city became modeled after Rome. Even its streets were made to look like the streets of Rome. It was governed in the same way that Rome was. And Latin became the official language instead of Greek, which would have been normally spoken by the citizens. And it even changed in the dress of the citizens of Philippi as they began to dress not in Greek clothes, but in Roman clothes, in the togas and other things that the Romans like to wear. The effect of the Roman conquest and dominance and favor on that city changed the city dramatically. That was the first major event that happened in Philippi's history. The second major event came about 100 years later, and it was even more dramatic for the people of Philippi. Whereas the first event had changed the face of the entire city and remade it after the image of that great conqueror, Caesar Augustus, and it got great conquering city, Rome, the second event went deeper, and it affected change in a far more dramatic yet subtle way. The second event changed the hearts of many in Philippi. It it reoriented their entire lives and it remade them after the image of the conqueror of hearts, Jesus Christ himself. You see, sometime around the year 50 AD, a hundred years after Octavius came to that city 
the Apostle Paul came to Philippi. And with him he brought the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the great salvation through faith in him. This gospel, for all those who embraced it and believed it, changed everything from the inside out. And that's why some ten years or so after the Apostle Paul first brought that gospel to Philippi, as he writes from prison, Paul prays the way that he does. He prays with joy. He prays with great longing and affection. He prays for love. And he does this because he knows the gospel. And he knows the effect that it has had on him as it reoriented his life, as he did a complete 180 from the life he was living to the life he then lived for Christ. And he's seen the same effect in the lives of the Philippians. And so the gospel forms Paul's prayer to this church that is so dear to his own heart. The gospel forms Paul's prayer for the, for the Philippians. And that's why he prays with joy. That's why he prays with longing. And that's why he prays for love. So Paul prays according to the gospel. The gospel forms Paul's prayer. And we see that Paul prays with joy. Paul begins here in our text in verse 3 of Philippians 1. He says, and these are striking words, I thank my God every time I remember you. This church was so dear to his heart. He felt so much affection and warmth for them. He was so impressed by the work that Jesus Christ was doing in them that he thanked God every time he remembered them. And he he's constantly not only remembering them and thanking God, but he's always praying about them and for them. He says, in all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy. So Paul's always praying for these Philippians, and he's always filled with joy for them. Joy. That's what is such a large part of Paul's prayers. And it's a theme of this entire book, in fact. It comes up over and over again. Chapter 4, verse 1, Therefore, my brothers, you whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown. Or else, in, he talks about rejoicing in this book. Philippians 1, verse 18, The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, he says, I rejoice, and yes, I will continue to rejoice. And he does continue to rejoice. In chapter 2, verse 7, 17 and 18, he says, Even if I'm being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. So you too should rejoice with me. So Paul is filled with joy and he's constantly rejoicing, even as he constantly prays for the Philippians. But why? Why is the Apostle so full of joy? Why is he always rejoicing and telling them to rejoice? Is it, is it because he's a really happy person? Is he just someone who's always just filled and gushing with joy? Or is it because of his circumstances? Because life is good. Why wouldn't he rejoice? Well, 
actually, it's not those two things at all. We know that Paul was not always a happy person. You can read his letter to the Galatians. The words that he has for that church there in the churches in Galatia show that he is not very happy at all with the way that things are going. And it's certainly not his circumstances either that are causing this rejoicing in his heart. As he writes this letter to the Philippians, he's in jail. He's not able to do the work of proclaiming to the gospel that, uh, proclaiming the gospel that he might wish to do, even though he is doing it very effectively from his jail cell. But certainly being in jail is not a circumstance that would normally lead you to joy. So what is it this, that causes this overwhelming joy in the Apostle's heart? Well, it is the Gospel. It's the Gospel. It's both the Gospel as such, the mere fact that Jesus Christ came down from heaven, incarnated, became a man, and that He died for sin, and that He rose victorious over the grave, and in so doing, He won victory for all those who would believe in Him. That fact alone for the Apostle causes much joy. But it's not only that fact, but it's the Gospel as it goes to work in the lives of the Philippians. In which the Philippians are going to work on. It's the Gospel showing itself in their lives. It's it's the Gospel bearing fruit in them. As they respond to the work that Jesus Christ has done for them. And brothers and sisters, that's what the gospel does. It doesn't remain an an outside fact that we simply acknowledge. The gospel goes to work on you. It changes you. It reorients you. It fills you with joy. Whether or not you have a sunny disposition. How could you not be filled with joy, with with deep-seated and true joy? When you realize that Jesus Christ has died for your sins. Yes, even when you feel down and out. Even when you cannot force yourself to even put a smile on your face. The gospel still fills you with joy. Because you realize that Jesus Christ has saved you from that which is causing you to suffer so much. The gospel brings joy. And the gospel brings Paul this joy. Well, what exactly about the gospel, even especially about how the gospel works out in the lives of Philippians, causes Paul this joy? Well, two things if we look at our text. First of all, in verse 5, he says, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. What he means by that partnership in the gospel is the cooperation and the support that the Philippians have given to Paul in all aspects of his work. He is sent to proclaim the gospel and the Philippians are supporting him in that and they're cooperating in any way that they can. You see, they too have have tasted and seen the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ through the preaching of Paul and now they want to respond in kind. Now, having been changed by that gospel, they become partners with Paul in the work of that gospel. The gospel goes to work on you so that you can go to work for the gospel. That's what happens. The gospel goes to work in our hearts 
so that we have the desire in our hearts to do the work of the gospel. Well, what does this partnership involve? Well, it involves a number of things we can glean from this letter, and we should also take note of them. We who have received the gospel. This is what the gospel looks like when it's being worked out in our lives. It it has to do with our money. It has to do with giving our money to support the work of the gospel. That is what Paul refers to repeatedly throughout this letter. In 4 verse 18, he says, I have received full payment and even more. I am amply supplied now that I have received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. The Philippians were supporting Paul in his work. It also has to do with encouragement and support. 4 verse 10, I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you have renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you have been concerned, though you had no opportunity to show it. They're not only supporting him in with their money, they're supporting him with their encouragement. And even more, it has to do with living out the gospel for others to see. In chapter 2, Paul says, you need to shine like stars in the universe. That's the working out of the gospel that Paul is rejoicing in. That's the partnership in the gospel that Paul is rejoicing in. So that brings Paul joy to see the Philippians responding to his message in the way that they are. But he is also filled with joy because he knows that Christ will finish his work. It may not be entirely clear that that's the second reason for his rejoicing, but again, if you would look at those verses 4, 5, and 6, you'll see it there. The first reason, verse 5, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And then at the beginning of verse 6, you could really go back to the end of verse 4. I always pray with joy, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ. Paul is rejoicing because he knows that Jesus Christ is the one who's doing this work, and he knows that he is not going to stop with this work. He's not going to stop what he started with the Philippians. Paul is rejoicing not only because he sees how the gospel is working in their lives, but he he sees really who is at work there. Who is at work? It's none other than the risen and ascended Lord, Jesus Christ, the King of the universe, the one who sits enthroned on high. The salvation and the regeneration of the Philippians has not been left to chance. It hasn't even been left to their own devices and to their own willpower. It's in the hands of Him who holds everything in the universe in His hands. It's in the hands of Jesus Christ. And those are powerful hands. Paul prays with joy for the Philippians. But of course we realize that this prayer must be broader than that. Does Paul pray with joy for Langley? Yes, he does. Because of your partnership in the gospel. Because of the way that you respond to the work of Jesus Christ in your hearts. Because of the support you show for the gospel with your money. With your support and encouragement. And with your daily lives as you seek to shine like stars in the universe. 
And Paul also would pray for joy with joy for us because he knows who is at work in our hearts. It's Jesus Christ himself. And so that is also our prayer for ourselves. May we who know the gospel, who confess the gospel, who love the gospel, may we be changed by the gospel. And may the life and death of Jesus Christ work itself out in our lives so that we become partners in the gospel from now until the last day when the work of Jesus Christ is complete. So Paul can definitely pray with joy. And brothers and sisters, we can definitely pray with joy. But Paul not only prays with joy, he also prays with with longing. He prays, when Paul prays, he prays with great emotion. That fact alone is one that we should consider for a moment. Just like the joy that Paul showed, I don't think this great emotion is something that's simply part of his character, but it is the effect of the gospel on him. That's what the gospel does to your heart. It changes how you feel. It changes what you feel. It's not without reason that God's regenerating work in us is compared to removing a heart of stone, a heart that's hard and cold, and giving us a heart of flesh, a heart that's warm, a heart that beats, a heart that feels. The work that the gospel is doing in our hearts is softening our hearts. You see, a cynical heart, a heart that is not changed by the gospel, a heart that's not thankful for the gospel, is a heart that keeps the emotion away because it It feels too invasive. It feels too vulnerable. It tries to protect itself by being cold. But the gospel of Jesus Christ must change our hearts so that we're able and willing to feel in new ways. It means that you're going to feel more pain as you sympathize and empathize with others who are going through difficulties. It's going to mean more heartache as you make yourself vulnerable in order to help. But overall, brothers and sisters, it means more joy. It means more rejoicing. It means more feelings of closeness and fellowship. That's the emotion that the gospel works in us. Well, when Paul prays, he prays with deep, deep feelings. He prays with joy, as we already saw. He prays with confidence, which we already spoke about as well. But Paul also prays with deep feelings of longing and affection. He says, it's right for me to feel this way about all of you since I have you in my heart. And then in verse 8, Paul says, God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. That word for affection comes from the the word that's also used in the original for, for heart or for kidneys or for liver for internal organs. It has to do with a deep-seated feeling. He's saying, when Paul says, I long for you with the affection of Christ Jesus, he's saying, I long for you with the heart of Christ. I long for you with His affection, with His compassion, with His longing. This answers the question, well, where do these feelings come from? We said it doesn't come from the fact that Paul is just a really emotional guy. These feelings come from Jesus Christ. As one person has said, it's not Paul who lives in Paul. 
but Jesus Christ. Which is why Paul is not moved by the bowels of Paul, but by the bowels of Jesus Christ. Think of what Paul says in those well-known words of Philippians 3 verse 10, I want to become like Christ. Or Galatians 2 verse 20 where he says, it's no longer I who lives, but it's Christ who lives in me. Or we can go to our reading, Colossians 3 verse 12. Perhaps you'd like to turn there for a moment. In Colossians 3, the Apostle Paul is speaking about putting off the old man and putting on the new man, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. We are being, Paul is saying, remade into the image of Jesus Christ. As we clothe ourselves, he says in verse 3, verse 12, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. The word that Paul uses for compassion there is the same word that Paul uses in verse 8 of our text when he's talking about the affection of Jesus Christ. It is the work of Christ in us remakes us so that we feel not with our own compassion, but with the compassion of Jesus Christ. When you're formed by the gospel, when you're formed by Christ's care for you, then you begin to feel with His compassion. Did our Lord not care for the suffering? Did He not have compassion on sinners? Did He not weep with those who wept and mourn with those who mourn? The Gospel at work in us gives us more and more that same heart of Jesus Christ, our Lord. So Paul prays with compassion, and we also, through the work of the Gospel in our lives, are filled with compassion. May we continue more and more to have the love, the compassion, the longing of Christ. But Paul also prays in this prayer for love. Just as the gospel forms those feelings of affection within you, so the gospel also forms love in you. If you're still at Colossians 3, then we can take a look at that for a moment and see it more clearly. We already noticed in verse 12 that... that The compassion of Christ is formed by the gospel and that we're remade in the image of Christ. But notice what Paul goes on to say. In verse 14, he says, And over all all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. So the crowning achievement of Christ at work in us, the virtue over all these virtues, is love. The love of Christ himself. Love is the outworking of the gospel in us. And so it becomes perfectly clear then why the Apostle Paul would pray for the love of the Philippians. Why he would pray that God would fill them with love. Because he's really praying that the gospel would more and more continue to work out in their lives. Notice that that's the basic content of his prayer. That your love may abound in verse 9, 
that your love may abound more and more. He's praying for love, for gospel-generated love. But it's not the fact that Paul prays for love here that's surprising, really. Love is the greatest commandment of God. We all know that. We all hear that every Sunday. It's also the greatest gift. If we as Christian, or if we're Christians, but we have not love, Paul says, then we're like a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Love is hugely important. So it's no wonder that Paul would pray for the love of the Philippians. It's no wonder that we need love in our lives. But what's perhaps surprising here is the character of the love that Paul's talking about. It's love that he prays would more and more abound in in knowledge and in depth of insight. So is that what love is all about? If you're smarter, then you can love more. The more, the smarter you are, the more loving you are. The more knowledge you have, the more love you have. Is that true? It doesn't seem to be true. So what's Paul talking about here? Well, in order to understand what Paul's talking about, then we need to understand really what knowledge is, this knowledge that he's talking about. And in order to understand that, we need to know, well, knowledge of what? There's lots of things that we can have knowledge of. What kind of knowledge is Paul talking about here? Well, he's not talking about knowledge in the general sense, knowledge of trivial things, of facts, dates, those sorts of things. But he's talking about knowledge of God and Jesus Christ. In his prayer for the Colossians, Paul prayed that they would grow in knowledge of God. In his prayer for the Ephesians, he prayed that they would know Christ more. In chapter 3, verse 8 of Philippians, Paul says, I consider everything a loss compared to the greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. So this knowledge is very focused knowledge. It's knowledge of God, the Father, and of Jesus Christ. But what does it mean to know the Lord? What sort of knowledge are we talking about, even when we're talking about knowledge of God? Well, knowledge in the Bible, we need to realize, often has to do with growing in close personal relationship with. So to know God more is to grow in your relationship with God. It's to grow closer to Him by learning about Him, by walking with Him every day, by learning about His will, His ways, and His works. It's, you could compare it to uh, knowledge in the context of a relationship. To grow in knowledge of your wife doesn't mean that you simply learn more facts about her, that you memorize her, her hair color or her birth date or her height or anything else about her. No, of course not. Growing in knowledge of your wife or of your husband means that you learn more about who she is, about, about what it is that makes her who, who she is. What makes her tick? What she enjoys? What she doesn't like? In order to do that, you spend time with her. And so how do you grow in your knowledge of God? How do you know, grow in your knowledge of Jesus Christ? Well, it means that you immerse yourself in learning about them. And in learning about them every day as you walk with them in your daily life. It means that you 
you dig in the Bible. It means that you really have to know God's Word. God's Word is where He reveals Himself most clearly. God reveals Himself on every page of this book. And so with every page of this book that we read, that we learn about, that we memorize, we grow more and more in knowledge of God and in Jesus Christ. We learn about His love. We learn about His mercy. We learn about His holiness. We learn about His glory. But it means also that you need to go beyond that. It means that you can't just simply memorize the whole Bible and and understand that. You need to go, you need to grow in knowledge. It means that you need to spend time reflecting on God's love and reflecting on God's holiness and ponder what it means for your life. It means that you ponder the grace that Jesus Christ showed in dying for you. And you consider how you might show that same sort of love to others. It means that you reflect on the holiness of God. And you consider what that holiness might mean for your life. And how you carry it out day to day. That's what knowledge is. It's growing in knowledge in terms of of knowing God's word. But it also means growing in knowledge in terms of how to apply God's word to our lives. And it's the same thing with depth of insight. The second part of this love that Paul prays for. The word for insight, it's not used anywhere else in the New Testament, but it was used in the Greek version of the Old Testament, especially in the book of Proverbs. Insight has to do with practical knowledge. It has to do with being aware of the consequences of an action. It has to do with understanding the significance of one's deeds. And so the focus of this love that Paul is talking about is a love that, yes, grows in its understanding of God, its understanding of Christ and His grace, but it's one that puts that love and grace and the knowledge of God into action in your own life. It's taking the gospel that we receive freely by God's grace and working it out for our lives. And it's it's no wonder that there's a connection between this gospel going to work in us and the new activities of the new man, of, of Jesus Christ being shown in us, of having the love and compassion and humility and gentleness and kindness and goodness and forgiveness of Jesus Christ in our lives. Those traits are simply the result of the grace of God going to work in our lives and showing its power. In our lives. When we show Jesus Christ in our lives, when we work out the gospel and apply what He has done for us in our actions, in our words, in our thoughts, then we're simply responding to what He's done for us. May Paul's prayer be effective for us, brothers and sisters. Because when this happens, then we're able to discern what is best. Then our priorities, Paul says, get straightened out. Only when you understand that Jesus Christ has died for you, will you be able to comprehend giving up your own needs in order to help someone else. It's only when you realize that God loved you when and because you were a sinner 
that you'll be able to show that same compassion for sinners. It's only when the reality of Christ's beauty and glory has struck your heart that you'll be transformed. And then you'll be able to discern what is best. What is the best course of action? What is the best thing to be doing? And what is best? This is what Paul says. I consider everything loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Paul prays that the Philippians will grow in this love because this love will keep them pure and blameless on the day of Christ. And is it really any wonder then if we consider this fact? Paul isn't talking about, when he talks about being pure and blameless on the day of Christ, he's not talking about a distinction between faith and works, between trusting in Christ and trying to merit our own salvation. That's not even in the discussion here. No, he's simply talking about the gospel changing our lives in our entire orientation from self-focused and self-glorifying to God-focused and God-glorifying. The love that Paul's talking about is love for God. And when we grow in the depth of our relationship with God and learn more and more how to apply that in our lives, then God will, of course, protect us from the power of evil. When you're working out the gospel in your lives, when you're more and more trying to figure out how is it that I serve the Lord, how do I show grace, how do I show love, compassion, kindness, gentleness, humility, then you almost don't have room for sin anymore. You're so busy trying to work out the gospel in your lives, you will be protected. Sin won't be able to master you because you'll be working constantly for the master who is above all, for Jesus Christ. And not only will we be protected, be pure and blameless, but the gospel will transform us into the image of Christ. Uh, The gospel, sorry, that transforms us into the image of Christ, goes further and it produces fruits of righteousness to God's praise and glory. That is, the gospel is not only defensive, it doesn't only protect us against the evil one, but it also goes on the offensive. It not only protects us from the evil one, but it produces fruits through faith in Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. God's recreating work begun in our hearts gets worked out in our lives and in this world. It's a gospel-generated life. That's what Paul prayed for. That's what we pray for too. The power of Jesus Christ at work in us and through us to the praise of his glory. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.